0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's military show, where every first Monday we get to chat with military historian Mike Guardia. He's an award-winning author, a historian, like I just said, and also a U.S. Army veteran. He is named author of the year in 2021 by the Military Writers Society of America. His latest books are The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II, And Coyote Recon, such a good name, The Forgotten Wars of Colonel J.D. Vanderpool. So I encourage you to go to Amazon, type in Mike Guardia. You will find, like, I think something over 20 books. And if you go to MikeGuardia.com, you'll find more there, too. But welcome back, Military Mike. How are you?
1: Hey, Lisa. I'm doing great. Always a pleasure to be on the show.
0: Hey, you know, um, today we're talking about Rosie the Riveter, right? And I know that we're going to be, you know, talking about her in, uh, March next year, 2024, because, you know, Women's History Month and there's Rosie right. the Riveter Day, March 21st next year and every day, every mm-hmm. year. Um, but Labor Day, this show is airing on Labor Day this year. And I saw somebody like, Hey, Rosie the Riveter is a symbol for Labor Day and for just labor as a whole, um, in, in this country. And I was like, Oh, I never even really thought of it that way. So I kind of wanted to go and trace the roots of her because when I found out, it's not just one woman, right? This is kind of a, there was one woman that started it, but yet at the (laughs) same time, this is kind of an icon that she's a symbol.
1: Absolutely. So Rosie the Riveter really was the embodiment and it, in a lot of ways, was the personification of uh, uh, of this mass mobilization of what we now know to as as the women's workforce. And it really became a PR symbol and it also became an icon for ladies everywhere because, hmm. you know, with the onset of World War II, uh, you had uh, you had the entire labor market really um, in an, in uh, in a state of flux because all of the able-bodied men were being drafted to go fight in the war. So now that you had a sizable uh, portion of the male population that was being drafted to go overseas and 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 fight the Nazis and fight the Japanese, you had a lot of defense industries and you had a lot of uh, you had a lot of uh, manual and skilled labor jobs that were being That were being unfilled. And uh, the only reasonable alternative at that point was for the women who were the wives and the girlfriends who the soldiers had left behind to uh, take up the reins in the absence of their significant other and, uh, you know, start taking on those jobs in order to help the war effort. And not only that, really also to help the economy and uh, to ultimately achieve victory through the means of an alternative labor force.
0: Yeah, and, and isn't this also part of Roosevelt understanding that this was a money-making way to – I mean, like, you know that wars lose money, but there's a way to make money. And he seemed to understand that. Was this part of it? Like, hey, we can't lose out, and we need ammunition. We need all these things that the women were doing. But it kept the economy flowing, didn't it?
1: Oh, it did. It did. Yeah, it, it – uh, it, was very much an economic decision in the sense that Roosevelt said, Okay, well, we need to keep the economy moving and we need to have people behind every one of these assembly lines. We need to have we need to have a warm body and we need to have someone with a uh, pulse and someone with all all of their uh, all of their faculties of mind to to get behind each each one of these positions and uh, not only turn out the uh, the raw materials and the refined weapons that we need to win this war. But also, if we uh, put money into the pockets of each one of these new wage earners, then, you know, they go out and buy more products, which will put more money into the economy and therefore um, more money behind the economic might and the economic power that we need to ultimately declare victory. Mm.
0: So we have all the and and we go for the victory, but then women had to move out of that and back into go home right and so yeah and women were at that point going hey we're not wearing skirts anymore i'm wearing pants you know <laughs> so kind of changed fashion too in a way yeah. and the way we thought about the women
1: yeah it was uh it was a very I- interesting time in american history because you know here on a very wide scale for really the first time uh you had this mass mobilization of a woman's workforce. You know, we really hadn't seen this I- any other time in American history prior to this point. You know, you, uh, you it, it was still very much a traditional culture and a and a traditional outlook at that point. To where, you know, if a uh, if you did have a woman in the home and she did have a job, it was purely out of necessity because the male of the house, he was expected to be the breadwinner and he was the sole breadwinner. And, uh, the, and both parties really subscribed to the, to, to the traditional gender roles where you had the, uh, you had the man of the house who was the breadwinner and the ladies stayed home and uh, took care of the, took care of the house. And she, she also raised the children. But now, um, you, they had a completely different uh, you had a completely different paradigm wherein the lady was going off to the factory or she was going off to uh, some some job that very often was more than nine to five and mm-hmm. they not only did those jobs but they did them incredibly well and even after the war ended uh, a lot of them took pause and said to themselves well gosh you know what for the better part of four years we've been Working these jobs, we've been the sole breadwinners and uh, we actually kind of like it. You know, a lot of us have uh, gotten some sort of fulfillment in it beyond what the traditional gender roles have always been. So uh, a lot of them, even though they were forced to give up those those jobs and those positions that really set the seed for what we would later um you know, what, what we would later see in the 1960s and the 1970s, where you had more women going to college and more women taking taking jobs in in uh, various parts of the workforce that were almost exclusively male-dominated.
0: It, it's fascinating to me because I think they also created that village of when they're working, who was watching the kids, so they kind of had like shifts and schedules for them. You know, it's not like right. they just kind of dumped their kids, but they became this... Unit, And we've talked a bit before on the show about like, you know, during Vietnam, you know, how Moore's wife, how she, you know, mobilized women together in regards to and creating a program for when, you know, their husbands and loved ones, you know, uh, were injured or killed at war and how she, you know, helped the women just personally, but then created a program for them. So it wasn't here, this taxi cab coming up and, you know, you know, your husband's dead. Um, so it's kind of interesting how things really started to shift with this. But, um, you know, because it was that was also real in World War II. How did they know if their loved ones were, you know, killed or injured during that time frame while they're working and raising kids? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that the military as a whole back in World War II, because so much of the country was mobilized behind the fight. Uh, that the, that the system of casualty notification was a lot more efficient than we, we would see in in the later parts of the Vietnam War. And, you know, for every, for, for, for every casualty that occurred, you would have a casualty response team. And what that would entail would be, you know, the, it would, would be a telegram, of course, delivered to the family of the deceased. And it would typically be delivered by a by a uniformed officer. And very often that officer would be accompanied by a chaplain to help the recently bereaved process through a lot of the raw emotions that they would have upon learning of the news of the, uh, of the death of a family member. And it, uh, it, was never truly a pleasant experience, but it was one that I think they handled with a lot more grace and dignity back in the second world war. And I wanted to, I wanted to touch on the earlier remark that you made about, uh, mm. uh, uh about really taking this uh, as far as a collective enterprise goes, because, you know, a lot of these women did band together and they did become a collective in the sense that not only would they take shifts watching their children, but a lot of them would carpool together, and uh, it really became a uh, it really became a synchronized network of this of uh, 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 this mutual support.
0: And I, I want to kind of step back though from World War II because I was reading today that it, I, I I may be wrong on this, but I know this all came together in World War II, but and nobody thought World War Two was going to happen because World War One was like, "Holy cow, that stuff really happened." Now we don't—that's we've ended it, right? And then, right. no, <clears throat> which we've covered on the show before, but didn't women do this a little bit in World War One too? And just didn't get the notoriety at the time because Norman Rockwell kind of painted this painting, and not kind of—he did for the Saturday Night Post, and um, was it Saturday Evening Post? I'm going to get it wrong, um, but he did a painting. Um, which isn't actually the one that we are all as, as familiar with. And then there was a song about it. And, you know, so PR wise, you know, that propaganda machine that we've talked about before, yeah. this hit the airwaves, you know. So women across the country from the artwork and then, you know, being in a publication, hearing this music, it, you know, rallied them up as a unit. But this actually did happen a little bit in World War Two, World War One. Right.
1: Yeah 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 that's right. Um it it happened to a lesser extent because if you take a look at America's involvement in World War 1, you know, really w- we 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 were latecomers to the fight, you know, you had America enter the First World War really in what amounted to the last 18 months of the conflict. So, you know, there was uh there was a lot of uh there was a lot of PR and a lot of news generated about the mass mobilization and, uh, you know, the American Expeditionary Force going over there to fight. Um, but because the, because our participation in the conflict was really such a flash in the pan, you know, you really didn't get a lot of, of press space dedicated to what was happening on the home front, at least not to the extent that you, you would see during World War II.
0: Hmm. So today people are looking at this. This was a labor movement. But it's mm-hmm. like now Labor Day is also about honoring those who labor, right? And right. we also look at, um, I mean, there's all kind. Of, look at what's going on with the writer's strike and things like that. Um, you know, it's, and what's going on, Amazon's getting, you know, has people go on strike all the time and Starbucks and all these big companies have these. And I think, and they use Rosie the Riveter, that symbol as part of it mm-hmm. of like, Hey, we can do it because that was, you know, their slogan, right, was "We can do it." Come on, girls! Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we got girl power. But now it's gone a little bit further than that.
1: I think. Yeah, that's right.
0: And yeah, and so, it's... yeah. I mean, do you ever have anything like that happen for the, towards the military? Because this was to me also interesting. It's a labor labor movement. Were they hired by the military, or con- like were they under? Because con- I know the military works with contractors. So uh-huh. that part I wonder about. Like, you know. Because conditions weren't exactly that sweet, you know. It's factory work, it's drilling, it's dusty, it's dirty, you know. You're breathing in things you probably don't want to, um. all for a good cause. But, and it's making money, but I wonder if it was contracted out versus the military paying them, you know.
1: Right. So, um, a lot of the paychecks that they drew were actually from the companies that they worked for. And it was all of those individual companies that were contracted to work for the Mm. military. You know, it's uh, it's um, I guess what most commentators would, would call the military industrial complex where you have the Pentagon issuing these need for priorities and these, and uh, all all of these different statements of need. And they're saying, okay, well to any one of you any one of you industries out there, if, uh, you know, if you guys can make this particular machine or if you can manufacture this particular part for us, you know, here is what, here's what we need. Here's what we're offering. You know, please submit to us your bids of how much you think it will cost to produce any of this. And, uh, then whoever's bid gets selected, that's when they go through all the negotiating process. I mean, this is handled through like, um, this, this is handled through through um all all of the War Department procurement uh, offices to say okay well if we need to produce like 500 units of this particular weapon uh you know here's what we can pay you over the cost of the production uh here's what we can reimburse you for as you know as far as the time that you've invested into this and uh, it's uh from that payment that that the company says okay well, if we have this chunk of change, say like it's five million dollars, then okay, we can afford, we we can afford to pay twenty thousand workers X some amount of dollars, not not including overtime.
0: Mm. Not including okay. overtime. So I think in a way too with the contractors, it's so that the government doesn't get sued. Ooh. <laughs> I wonder about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. uh ooh. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that. Am I secret service going to come get me? But um, I wonder about that, you know, those conditions. And, but I think it really, they, they had that. We can do it just like in the military. If you're in battle, isn't that attitude, the same thing too. We can do it, go for it. Um, That energy has to happen. That synergy, I should say, not just energy, but synergy and teamwork.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right.
0: Wow. Wow. So, okay. So, Rosie gets out there, but mm-hmm. it, it started with one woman, though, right? So, one lady, and, and we're talking women all across the country and of all uh, diverse backgrounds, too, right? That's the other thing we need to remember. Um, there's Ro- Rosie the Riveter National Historic Site in, um, California in the Bay Area that I really wanted to go. And, um, one of the eldest, uh, National Park Service, um, Curators was there, and she recently retired, and she was over a hundred years old, which I think is amazing. And I believe she was actually a riveter at one point, or she at least knew a lot. But that's the thing. I mean, that's I want people to understand that too. That this was a people coming together regardless of their backgrounds, just like in any war, right?
1: It sure, is. it sure is. You know, you had um, you had. had an incredibly diverse swath of the population mm. get mobilized for this and it was incredible to see a, a lot of them come together you know it's uh, and it's in a way it's kind of ironic you know they they, they say that necessity is, is, is the mother of innovation and you really saw that play out in the workforce because you know you you had different races and different ethnicities working alongside each other in, in a lot of these um in and in, in, in a lot of these defense jobs and you really didn't see that in years prior mm-hmm. and the more that they came together for the sake of satisfying the country's manpower needs, you know you uh started to see more and more people working alongside each other. And uh, that really, I think was one of the things that started to break down a lot of the, uh, a lot of the preconceived notions that people had about race. I think it was one of the many things that made it easier for the civil rights movement to gain traction in the way that it did a decade later.
0: Thank you. Really? Because it, it, Jim Crow stuff has been around right for ever. Yeah. Um And obviously, look at what our country is going through now. But Mm. I look at, you know, I was looking at pictures like women in Tuskegee. And I think about these black women in the South going out there. At the same time, really some other really horrible things were happening to them. And, you know, it's just this weird era. And you think about that. I I just have this thing. Can we do a thing on the Tuskegee Airmen at some point? I just, I I find, I, I just... They're badass, you know. And then they got, you know, when they got over to different countries, they were accepted more than what they were accepted here, which is heartbreaking, you know. Um, and they fought. It's just like the Buffalo Soldiers and all the Native Americans who fought side by side, you know, with us that came into this country, going, "Hey, this is ours now," you know. the Tuskegee Airmen, you know, that's I saw a woman. It was on Wikipedia. You'll, and I'll put this probably in this and, um you know, on the website or something but a black lady out there with, with the little dookie. What do you call uh, dookies of South Africanism? What do you call like the bandana on their heads? Right. And here she yeah. was, you know, doing this and you got to think about going from slavery, which I'm sorry, just, it, it takes time going all the way through then to now. Um, it takes time. And then here you are side by side, maybe with women that were, you know, not exactly nice to them before. And now suddenly you have to unite. And um, and I just think, especially, you know, in certain regions of this country, um, there was a lot of change that had to happen and change takes time. And, you know, when I see that one picture of that woman in Tuskegee doing it, I was like, wow, you know, you've got to think of that, you know, and here's this iconic image of this white woman who's not even real. Well, she was, you know what I mean? Started with one woman, but it's an icon. Um, it's an image and it's white, but what about the black women? I'm just saying, you know what I mean? Um, so there was a lot of black women doing this too. So I just want to give them a shout out because they could have said, you know, screw y'all <laughs> you guys weren't that nice to me at this time. And now, you know, my husband's off, you know, fighting as well. Um, but everyone unified because of the greater evil, right? Mm-hmm. Unity on the greater evil. Um, but I I think that's something to think about. Of you know, the black culture going through so many different things, and then hey, I'm going to fight alongside these women that at one point were kind of maybe turning their nose. Maybe they weren't. You know, everybody's different, right? So I'm not mm-hmm. generalizing, but of course I have to do a little bit of that. But I think that's pretty cool. And and do you think it changed for the soldiers too? Um. You know, once you're together fighting the enemy, that it really didn't matter about the color of your skin at that point. I mean, there's going to still be stuff, right? But at the end right. of the day, don't people have to unify at some point?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and it, and I think in a lot of ways, that was one of the things that, um, that, really precipitated the desegregation of the armed forces. Um, because, you know, here we had here, here here we had this long four-year struggle, and you had a lot of segregated units um who fought valiantly and uh were absolutely, absolutely critical to the outcome of the war. And, you know, it wasn't but a few years after World War II ended that now, President Harry Truman comes along and says, OK, well, you know, if uh, if Americans of every color fought so valiantly to defeat the access, then there's no reason why we should we, we should even we should even keep them segregated. And I also think it's uh I think it's ironic and humorous at the same time that the U.S. military desegregated before American society as a whole did because you had the desegregation of the armed forces in 1948 and uh you know it wasn't until the end of the 1960s that we that we that we finally saw the abolition of jim crow and you know you had a uh, you had the civil rights movement reach critical mass
0: but this when we think about it this was in this was before the end of the jim crow era so that is yeah. pretty novel about yeah. everyone coming together you know mm-hmm. um and, and so I know the Tuskegee Airmen made some history, right? Mm-hmm. But what about the rest of the country? What about the rest of the women? I mean, were there specific areas where the women were doing, working in these plants?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there absolutely were. So, you know, you had, um, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I, I, I can just name a few examples off my head. Um, mm-hmm. so if we, one the clocks back to nineteen forty two um I think one of the uh one of the more prominent factories that was staffed almost exclusively by female line workers was the Douglas Aircraft Company. They were in Long Beach, California, and uh you know you had certain sections of every part of the assembly line where you saw women line workers who were uh you know who were operating lathes and they were they were installing some critical components to the aircraft themselves and you know it's uh it was very common to see female line workers but you still had Mm -hmm. you, you you still had male supervisors you had uh you know you you had um you had all, all of these first line supervisors and these mid-level managers who were still men at the time. And, uh, yeah, it made for an interesting dynamic. And if you read some of the oral histories that a lot of these Rosies have left behind, they, uh, <laughs> they commented that, um, working in any number of these factories and, uh, being a, being a rosy, quote unquote for however many years they were on the job, actually, uh, actually led to them meeting their future husbands because you have a few who admitted, yeah, you know, I went to work at, uh, I went to work at the Douglas aircraft, uh, company, or, you know, I went to work for, or, you you know, or I went to work for North American and, uh, yeah, my, uh, my first line supervisor, uh, put me through orientation on the first day. And about six months later we were on our honeymoon. So, (laughs)
0: wow wow so it's yeah i mean things move quickly huh Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah a lot of people got married real quick huh i was like oh we met each other and like hey you never know what's going to happen do it now and do you Mm -hmm. think there was also that just out of worry of pregnancy too probably like because there were shenanigans and i know that after world war ii there's a lot of shenanigans because people were so happy and then it was like all these babies were born like you know nine months after
1: after v day
0: yeah, exactly, you know v exactly it's the hello, here we are they have a they have a name for this, right, um for real for a real reason, but yeah, you kind of gotta think about that, and I think it's an interesting time because it was supposed to be the world that end all ended all you know the war that ended all wars, and then the second one was the same thing, and then here comes Vietnam, and do you think people were kind of tired, and what did the women think at that point because people were getting to the martini lunches and it was like the Mad Men Society came up, right? After that. Mm-hmm. And it, so if you think about the women and the workforce, how it changed from suddenly women were in the workforce more and and there's been a lot of laws that have had to pass over that now too. So um, it's kind of an interesting thing that has transpired from Rosie the Riveter on. You know, did other countries do this? I I gotta just before I get to that. What about the oh, other yeah. countries and their women? Because, as I recall, like you know, in certain countries like Israel, like the women actually joined the military, didn't they?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, World War Two was an incredibly interesting time for women all all across the Allied front because you know in in uh, you know and other Allied nations. You had women who were taking up jobs back home while the men went overseas to fight. But uh, one that really stands out for a number of reasons was the latter-day Soviet Union. And the Soviets mm-hmm. were were incredibly interesting among all of the uh, all the Allied countries because, unlike the Western Allies, the Soviets didn't have any formal restrictions on women in combat. And even though they tried to discourage women from joining, they did not formally prohibit it. You know, they said, Hey, whether you're a guy or a girl, if you want to fight for mother Russia, you know, by by all means you can. And, Mm you know, and you, you had, you had the Soviets really stand out among the allies because they had uh they, they, they they had so many um, women who were fighting on the front lines. Now, of course they fought within their own segregated units, um, but still you had these, uh, you had these all female units who, who were performing valiantly. And, uh, not only that, were uh, striking fear into the hearts of the Germans. And, and you know, there are, there are quite a few examples. If you, uh, just look at, you know, various parts of uh, the Soviet, uh, history of World War II, where you have, uh, where you have female fighters distinguishing themselves, you had, You had, uh, for instance, there was a uh, there was a top scoring uh, female Soviet sniper. You, uh, of course, had uh, the members of the Night Witches, were the uh, were were the the uh, the the notorious bomber squadron who were yeah. You talked about them in
0: one of your books. Yeah, Yeah. I remember them. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So uh, it it uh, it really went to show that. Regardless of your gender, if you were sincere about performing a mission and you weren't interested in in trying to prove some greater point of gender politics that, you know, you could you could accomplish a particular mission when the chips were down and the odds were stacked against you. And you uh, your only goal was to try to rid the world of this qualitative evil that was known as the Axis powers. You know, because uh, in the Soviet Union, even after VE Day, uh, you saw a return to normalcy that was uh, very analogous along the lines of what you saw in the U.S. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you had these women uh, fighter pilots, these women bomber pilots, who all did their jobs very well. But after the war was over, a lot of them went back to their traditional gender roles, and I uh, really didn't think much of it at the time. But almost in tandem. Mm-hmm. You see a you see a subtle push towards well you know hey we fought this incredible evil in World War II so you know let's let's make more exceptions for women wanting to be in the workforce and you know right around the time when I guess you could say the uh, first of you could say the first of the women's lib movement popped up in the early 60s here in the U.S. you know meanwhile across the pond on the other side of the Iron Curtain you had the you had the celebration of the first, the, the first female Soviet cosmonaut, and uh, you know you had other, you had other female firsts within the Soviet Union at that point as well.
0: So you know it's interesting too because I wonder how many women went to it out of just getting out of even a situation that they may be in that they weren't happy in. You know, maybe a family situation or something like that where they're like, "I'm out of here." I'm going to go do this. I believe in the country, but maybe not my situation. I need to do something. And this was a different opportunity. I mean, I know that happens. I mean, we talked about this, like Lee Marvin and stuff. He's like, hell yeah, I'm going in there. I know how to do this stuff. I'm, you know, even, (laughs) you know, coyote recon, JD Vanderpool's kind of like that too. Right. He's like, this stuff ain't working here. I've got an opportunity there that I, I know I could be a badass And so I wonder about the women doing it too, where they're like, I need to be some, I need like, women's lip is a a real thing and what if you know they were in some little town that you know you're not getting anywhere and this was a way of i'm doing something and people could give you the nod to get out of town you know Mm -hmm. i wonder if that happened exactly with rosie the riveters and you know the riveters i shouldn't just say rosie but the riveters as well as you know all these pilots and people that started fighting these women that started getting into wars whether they're making mm-hmm. ammunition or shooting it you know the Russians are bad <laughs> What what yeah. book was that would, would you, which one was that was that Skybreak or a different one
1: no that, that no, was not Skybreak
0: um, That no it was a- the
1: Air War on the Eastern Front
0: that's right that's right yeah Skybreak mm-hmm. was a, a desert storm but yeah um it, it's amazing to me you know and I think I think some women got themselves out of places they didn't want to be mm-hmm. by doing using it you know, why not? Yeah. yeah, go for it while you can. But as a unit, like here in this country, you know, women working together, I know, you know, I grew up in a different, obviously a different time, right? In a different place, but like in, like if I think back to high school days and stuff, it was kind of, I feel like I was, you know, Africa is a little bit different, not as modernized as here in my mm-hmm. growing up times. And there's no way you were going to get away with anything because the women all knew each other and would just go through the backyard. Everybody had the backyard gate. I mean, this was in England too. It was like that. There was just that era where the women all knew each other down the street. They would gossip too and have tea together. And, you know, so-and-so did this and everybody knew each other's scandals and dramas. And, but the kids were always watched after, you know, if, if they're, playing in your yard everybody knows you know all of that it, it was just like if you're in, on a street everybody knew what you were doing all the moms knew and they visited each other they did laundry together they you know not in, taught taught younger women how to bake a cake or you know they helped each other there was this network mm-hmm. of women and it wasn't just the you know the the, the dutch versus the the british or anything i'm, I'm just saying in general you know um I saw that a lot growing up of this network of women in in South Africa, especially just in that era of where being aware of it, you know, going, wow, that's a little, that's that's not what it looks like in, in American magazines. You know what I mean? American magazines, women were, because in South Africa, when we landed in South Africa, Nancy and I went into a hotel bar restaurant area. It's a restaurant bar and she got kicked out because she was a female. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, we had their, their segregation was not just black and white. It was men and women. Men had their own restaurant sections versus women. So there was segregation at that time. And, you know, as a kid, you can run between people's legs and do whatever you want, you know. But uh, for women, she was shunned. And we had to go and leave the restaurant. And you go over here where the women have tea. And so it was a little bit I don't want to say backwards because none of these women were backwards, but we had that kind of era when I was growing up and it was very difficult. Nancy's very, you know, I'm American. I'll do what I want. At the same time was very um, open culturally in cultural diversity that wasn't there. So it was a very interesting time for us to live there and see what was going on with women and progression because women were getting jobs in my era Um, when I graduated high school, a lot of my friends went off and got married and had kids and, and then uh, there's a whole side of us that said, no, we're doing this. We're opening businesses. We're doing this, you know? So it was kind of, I think our era was kind of at that time where women were changing what they were doing and being a little bit more progression, like progressive. And, um, like even we didn't have internet, right? We didn't have TV like you have in the States. We didn't have yeah. that. We had, um, a few hours a day that was in our language and it had to share lang, like TV time was shared with different languages and you had maybe one to three channels. When we left, we had three channels. Yeah. So it, um, your communication radio was always a big deal. And, th- and I think that was that thing with the song for Rosé the Riveter, that song and, you know, the magazines and publications. I think that's what really spurred the women on because they would sit and read an article together and have that cup of tea at the kitchen, the kitchen table that the kitchen table is everything to women, man. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs a kitchen table. That's where (laughs) everything gets hashed out. You get a cup of tea, put the kettle on. You know, you could tell when a friend would walk in, Oh, put the kettle on. Stuff's going down. What's happening? The kettle goes on. You know, it's an endless kettle, (laughs) you know, tea is endless and cake is endless and sandwiches is endless, but that's what it was like. And I kind of identify with these women just over that upbringing and that, um, seeing the women, you know, that were older than me, obviously, you know, my mom's age and everything, just kind of looking up going, wow, you know, and you don't mess with them either. They were hardcore, you know, they may not have had, um, voting rights at that point either. I don't think actually. I know Nancy never had voting rights when we lived outside the country, right? Makes sense, but the doesn't mean that they didn't have power. You know what I mean for women. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Rosie the Riveter probably had to go over to different countries to empower other women beyond here. You think? Just even with music, that it got on the radio waves and stuff
1: oh, that other yeah, women I mean, heard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, n- n- not not only the music, but uh, you know, but also the. Uh... Also, the pop culture icons, a lot of the uh, popular art. You know, everyone uh, everyone's familiar with the everyone everyone's familiar with the popular image of Rosie the Riveter. You know, she's wearing a uh, you know she's wearing those blue coveralls and has a red bandana and you know, she's flexing her bicep, saying "We can do it." I mean, that yeah. is a uh, that that is an image that is known the world over, and I think it has a universal appeal in that sense. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It started with Norman Rockwell and it was, um, he heard the song. So Rosie, the Riveter song came up before Mm -hmm. his image. And then he he did it for the Saturday evening post. I got to get it right here when we're talking about stuff. Um, but then somebody else went and redid it because of copyrights. And it was J Howard Miller (laughs) who did the, the one that we all know. But I I mean, it's kind of, Yeah. It's amazing, man. So the power of music and, and imagery, right? And how it can spread in right. women. At, I, I swear it's the tea table. It's the kitchen ga- table. Like, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, did you have that growing up? The kitchen table no, as sure. a centerpiece? So you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, I don't think it's gone. Um, you know, it's just a good place. Everybody needs the kitchen table. I think this mm-hmm. country needs to bring it back. You know, everybody has their bars and islands and their kitchens and everything, you know, just feel like sometimes you know some of that older stuff needs to come back for people to be comfortable to communicate and let go of things you know and um there's always the pot of tea mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah i just yeah it's, it's fun memories but um this is awesome so do you think with this movement do you think that it spurred and helped movements like Cesar Chavez and other lab- labor movements in history that the Rosie the Riveters gave like um, an inspiration to someone like Cesar Chavez. Obviously, you know, he, he, he was born in Yuma, Arizona, and mm-hmm. um, obviously ended up in the Central California Valley working. And all he wanted really was for a better tool for people to be able to cut vegetables and and harvest better so it wasn't killing them and hurting them right um
1: yeah well well i think um i think what it did was it uh it created a good pr reference point for a lot of the a lot of the labor movements that we would see rise up in the late 40s and all throughout the 50s And I think what it did in a roundabout way was say, okay, well, here you had a labor movement that was born of necessity. You included a demographic that was previously thought of in one capacity, but they showed themselves to do something in a completely different capacity. So now that we have a clear data point where we can say, hey, these group of people contributed to the war effort, and uh, they defied a lot of Common stereotypes. Well, we use that as a reference point for our own movement to say, well, hey, here's here's another labor issue that needs to be resolved. Here's something that's uh, that can be pointed to have a qualitative benefit for the country as a whole, and uh, the the individuals, all of the all of the um, all all of the building blocks of this movement are people who. Also belong to a demographic that is not particularly well thought of. Well, you know, hey, don't count us out. Give us, uh give us our dignity and give us our day in court, just like you did to Rosie the Riveter back in World War II.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I think because women were underserved at that time, and I think back in, um you know, going back to the black women serving, and at the time in our country, I and mean, we had the Jim Crow era. I mean, it was even. I, and am I getting it? I'm getting my errors wrong. Please correct me. Like. I think about oh, the good. Little Rock Nine going to school then yeah. segregation in schools. Was that right after this? This was after, right? Yeah. This mm-hmm. was after, the 60s, 70s. Right?
1: Yeah. So Jim Crow came about really um, in the wake of the Civil War and it lasted all the way until the end of the 1960s. So. That's
0: crazy. So this was going yeah. on at the time. Mm-hmm. And the segregation in schools, I mean, we went to the Little Rock School High School, and which is the only school yeah. in a National Park Service that's an actual working school where kids go to school and it's sobering. I mean, it's, and they've got like the old gas station next to it and uh you can go to the visitor center and everything, but go to the actual school. And it's like, and you think about what, what did the parents think knowing their kids are going, they're walking in and, you know, the white kids are going after them and, and, you know, the school staff wasn't that great. And, you know, we had a great president who said, that's enough. and, you know they stood up and i think some we may have one or two alive i think still but if you think of that time frame right it's not that far away from you know what happened with Rosie, the riverer series like here's these women out there showing we can do stuff in all colors i don't think they got as much um th- the black women didn't i you know and i'm sure there's other um races and cultures involved too so i'm not trying to generalize um but i don't think they got their time, day as much as the women, white women did, um, but at least they were there, and I think they probably locally got, no, you know what I mean, local understanding, and um, but you've got to think what they, those women were going through, too, at that time. There was, you know, really bad things happening to women in small towns, uh, medically, eugenics, and I don't want to get into the whole thing of that, but it was all around the same time frame. Within 20 years, these women, I mean, I just kind of go like, and these women still put their lives, not their lives on the line their husbands did, but they put, they still did stuff. And I think that's something very noble to think about, you know. If you've been, you come to a country through slavery, your generations go through all this, right? Um, and now there's a world war, sure, you're going to come together on things, but it seems to me like they did stand up again. And we should remember that about these these different cultures of people that um, didn't always choose to be here, but they stood up for us just like the indigenous, like the Navajo code talkers, you know, we've talked about that. And in the civil war, the native Americans and the black people and the Buffalo soldiers that fought, you know? So I think there's just something to think about, like people standing up even in the face of personal adversity cultural adversity and still doing something for their country i think that's very brave you know and honorable um yeah it just kind of got me with that with that picture of rosie the riveter because it's always that super icon i'm like oh this is cool someone is showing the other side you know so not going on a tangent i'm just saying (laughs) (laughs) just saying because women's liberation is women's liberation right and we we showed that and then we got to wear pants and um then all of a sudden people were having martini lunches and dinners. And then shenanigans happened after that kind of thing. And then, um, we now need to have more rights for women as things go, as we can see that it's a never ending struggle, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see women's revolution. You know, it's a women's revolution, I think. I don't, yeah. would you say that's the right word? That's not the right word because they didn't, they didn't need to, re- well, you, they helped. They didn't revolt. They yeah. helped.
1: Yeah, well, I, I'd, I'd say it was a revolution in the... Uh, I, I would say it's a revolution in the broadest sense of the term. I mean, because it doesn't always necessarily mean that there's a revolt behind it. It just means that something is rapidly changing. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, it, it's unexpected and it goes against what an established cultural norm is you
0: know for the greater good yeah yeah that taught some lessons there very cool mm-hmm. mike uh good to have you back on everyone uh mikeguardia.com is the website to go to how many books is it 24 25 gotta keep me up to date on this yeah,
1: 21 isn't even 25
0: yeah it is 25 yeah i'm uh-huh. to go 21 i think i still want to be 21 that's why Me too. i was on a panel chat th- today and and the lady said yeah we're all in the same you know age group and i'm like really <laughs> i'm like okay i'm 21 i thought i was still 21 what are you talking about you know? I was like what do you what do you mean well you know <laughs> like what's what's going on with that but um 25 is good and tell everybody what's coming up next
1: Alrighty. So yeah, have two more projects in the hopper. Um, one is very, very close to being completed. Uh, that's the story of the combat engineers in Vietnam. And, uh, then after that, there is a, there's another book on the horizon that is a, um, that deals with a, uh, what I think is an oft overlooked, uh, part of modern military history. It's about the spy war in Bosnia.
0: Hmm. Okay, so that's going to be cool. Spy. Yep. We want to know about spies. Yeah, and then you've got to think, you know, we have spies today, don't we, Mike? Like yeah, we do. What, like what's going on between Ukraine and Russia right now?
1: Of course. You know there's yeah, I mean, spies
0: running around, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, at any given moment, you you will have more than a few handful of uh, spies from any number of countries infiltrating borders um uh all all around the world you know it, it, the uh, the game of espionage is you know just this big never ending network of spy versus spy and you know trying to get their hands on the on the most viable piece of information they can to to uh you know to help out their home country and to help stay ahead in the game
0: I wonder how much of it comes from oligarchs, you know, um, around the world. Like, And then a government has to go against really huge, like people with huge amounts of money like that we can't even think, you know what I mean, how much they have. And how do you outdo someone like that that has that much money? I wonder about that these days. Like when you have that many oligarchs, I mean, how many billionaires we have in this country right now. I'm like, wow, that's pretty. I mean, we have over a thousand billionaires. I think it is. Was that thousand or ten thousand? And I think that's a lot. It used to be, we, you know, growing up, didn't you always think there was like one or two, or maybe five, ten was big? Now we got that many. So how does the government go after those people? You know, and have the funding for it through spies and everything. You know what I mean? Because you have to kind of look the part, be the part. You know, maybe I'm just in movie land playing James Bond in my mind. Is that what's going on? No, <laughs> just kind of...
1: no. no so um, yeah, the, yeah. Um, if uh, if you're part of a clandestine service, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of money and training that goes into it. You know, um, you can send spies out to do any number of things across borders. But you do run into that problem, and it's pretty much just like you mentioned. You know, they uh, they have to look the part. They have to uh, speak a language fluently. And, you know, it, some people can pull it off to the point where they can pass themselves off as native speakers and they can blend in so well. Um, for, uh, I think, for the normal person and even for a number of people who go through spy training, there's only so much that you can pull off. So what a lot of uh, spy networks do Is they cultivate, uh, sleeper cells within the existing borders. Say, like, you want to have a spy ring that's in Armenia. Well, you know, there are a few people that you can think of who are readily available who convincingly look the part to pass as an Armenian and people who can speak the language fluently enough to fool even, you know, even the most astute native speaker. So instead of, uh, putting a, putting an agent on the ground, from your own country to try and pose as one. What you do is you cultivate a network of disaffected Armenians within the borders already. Say, uh, someone who, uh, you know, saw his family thrown into a political prison. Well, he's disgruntled. He hates the government, but oh yeah, there's a uh, spy handler from the U.S. who wants to keep sending this guy money and say, okay, well, hey, in exchange for, um, you know, money and protection from the U.S., you know, go ahead and spy on your own government, uh, try and get as close to, uh, as close to the action as you can and send us as much information as you can. And you really saw a lot of that going on throughout the cold war. Um, You know, you had, uh, you had these, um, you had these homegrown spies on both sides of the iron curtain, you know, you would have CIA and KGB operatives, um, you know, trying to activate these homegrown sleeper cells, you know, say, Hey, there's some guy in America who's willing to, Sell us secrets. Well, you know, send a KGB or two guy to contact him and try and funnel those secrets back to the Kremlin. And for our part, we were doing wow. the same things. We were trying to, uh, you know, we were trying to bribe a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of Russian officials to, uh, to give us, uh, to give us as much pertinent information as they had access to.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to, right? I mean, that's what it's about, but it's, it goes back to even what I was saying about. People going towards something because they have nothing to lose. Do you know what I mean? And in yeah. a place of war and they're good at something, they've got a tech, they've got a technique. They may be like, I'm just going to use Lee Marvin again. You know, he's mm-hmm. cool. He had techniques, uh, uh, Coyote Recon, JD Vanderpool, same thing, have yeah. these techniques and this practice and these skills. I should say skills is the word. Um, and if you can be stealth and, and read, body language, whether it's animals or people, it's the same thing, right? You can be pretty deadly, you know, and have emotional inte- intelligence. I think that's the thing. Emotional intelligence is huge and hard. Yes. It's huge and difficult. I mean, if we all kind of subscribe to emotional intelligence, the world would be a lot better. But it's, you know, we have emotion that messes up the emotional <laughs> intelligence, you know, and, and you. but there's no place for that, right? Yet at the same time, it's part of the fire and the adrenaline that moves things forward, you know? So, wow. Good conversation as always, Mike, uh, everyone. Again, so I'm just going to give everyone the, the latest books again. So go get them. The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the front lines of World War II, and Coyote Recon. you got to watch, uh, read that and say, watch it, read it. It should be a movie. I, Nancy and I both say that Coyote mm-hmm. Recon should be a movie. Can you, can you do that, please? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: If only I could get, uh, I could get inroads, uh, into Hollywood and get.
0: Well, I think they need writers right now. I mean, I'm thinking about that. It's like, hello, people. Um, there's a bunch of authors with a lot of stories out there, you know, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, I stand, um, with the workers too, the, the actual writers that are not getting, you know, I don't know. It's, it's getting weird with AI, you know? Yeah. It's going to be a weird time of. things moving forward it's going to be an interesting interesting time but everyone again coyote recon the forgotten wars of colonel jd Vanderpool. you got to you got to get that book and again mike is on uh amazon but you can also go to mikewardia.com he's here every first monday talking military history and and all kinds of other topics that we throw at him he manages to handle so he's (laughs) got it he's got he's got emotional intelligence thank you so much mike it's been a pleasure
1: Well, thank you so much, Lisa. It it is always a pleasure to be on the show.